I encourage you to open up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. And be in chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 this morning. And I want to begin by reading from those verses. Give you a minute to find that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. The title of our message today is Holy Walk, Pursuing Sexual Purity. This is the second part of our message that we began last week. I want to read through um, all of these verses again. So, verses 3 through 8. This is the Word of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help me to preach your word faithfully? Would you help all of us to listen to your word attentively? And Lord, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most memorable New Year's Eve experiences I've ever had was in Hong Kong. I got to spend a New Year's Eve in Hong Kong, and my friends and I, we decided to take a bus down to the harbor. We heard that there was a fireworks show. Uh, well, if there's a fireworks show, I'm going to go and check it out. So we went down there. We really weren't thinking that this was Hong Kong, one of the largest cities in the world. And so we get down there, and there's already a huge crowd, and we kind of find our place there in the, on the street where you can see the harbor. And uh, by the time the show started, it, it was packed. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people just shoulder to shoulder standing in the streets watching. The show was incredible. It was fireworks, lasers coming off of buildings, and then the lights on the buildings, just huge high-rises down there. It was, it was an incredible show. Well, as soon as the show was over, it's over. Everybody's trying to get out of there. And in that moment, I mean, within probably 10 seconds of the show ending, that entire sea of people just started moving. And, uh, and I, I didn't really know much about my surroundings, but I did kind of know the general direction that we needed to walk to get back to the hotel. I kind of knew, hey, we need to go this way, this direction. Problem was, that entire mass of people just started going this way. I mean, they were going the opposite direction that I thought that we needed to go. I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd so large where it almost feels like you've just been picked up and you're just being carried. I mean, they, you, you basically, it feels, like, it feels like you have no control over where you're going. And so, in, in that moment, I quickly realized the easiest thing for us to do was just to move in the same direction as the crowd. That was the easiest thing, even if that was not the direction that I wanted us to go. And so we just decided, go along with the flow of the crowd. Now, when it comes to pursuing sexual purity while surrounded by a culture that is pursuing sexual immorality, it can feel a lot like that night in Hong Kong. I've often thought back to that night and what that felt like. 
to, to be pushed in a direction that I, I, I knew I wasn't supposed to be going. You, you know how you're supposed to conduct yourself, but it's just so much easier to move in the same direction as the crowd around you. You might even wonder, which I did that night in that 10 seconds of what do we do, had to evaluate, is it even worth it to try to push back in the opposite direction? Perhaps even, even this week, you found yourself lacking in motivation to honor the Lord in a particular area of your life. Maybe even in this area of walking in sexual purity versus walking in sexual immorality. Today I want to share just some motivations. That's, 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 my, that's my desire this morning, to share some motivations for pursuing sexual purity in our lives. Last week we began studying this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-8. through 8. And Paul here in this part of the letter is instructing the Christians how to walk in holiness. How, how, how to live in a way that pleases God, specifically in these verses in the area of sexual purity. Last week we said that this passage, verses 3 through 8, teaches us that as a Christian, your submission to God should lead you to resist sexual immorality. Your submission to God should lead you to resist sexual immorality. Now, that's a great statement on paper, right? I mean, that sounds great. But you know as well as I do that that's extremely difficult to put into practice. If everyone around us was submitting to God's standard of holiness, then it would be so much easier. But you know as well as I do, everyone around us is not submitting to God's standard of holiness. We said that holiness, sanctification, means to be set apart from the ways of the world. So here's what that means in the context of pursuing sexual purity. When the culture says you should engage in sexual activity with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you get married... The follower of Jesus says, no, God designed sex to be enjoyed only inside the covenant of marriage. When the culture says you can have a sexual relationship with someone who's the same sex as you. The follower of Jesus says, no, God's word condemns homosexuality over and over throughout Scripture as sinful, as a violation of God's original design of and God's original plan for humanity. When the culture says you can be married to one person, but engage in sexual activity with another person, the follower of Jesus says, no, God says adultery is sinful because it violates his creation order mandate that says a man should hold fast to his wife. When the culture says you can look at pornography, everyone does it. The follower of Jesus responds by saying, no, looking at images of someone exposing themselves means looking for sexual pleasure outside the covenant of marriage, not to mention it's reducing a person who is made in the image of God for the purpose of glorifying God down to an object whose purpose is just to satisfy or try to satisfy my sexual urges. When the culture says you can lust after someone, I mean, that's, nobody will ever even know that. That's just something that happens in your own mind. The follower of Jesus says no, no. God designed sexual pleasure to be enjoyed between two people, not between me and myself. Plus, sexual imaginations of another person, again, means treating that person like an object for my pleasure rather than a human being made in the image of God. Again, that sounds great on paper, but in the middle of temptation, that's not easy. It's not easy to say no to the world and yes to God. This being set apart from the ways of the world can often seem even impossible. 
as our flesh seems to really just scream at us sometimes. Just give in. Just go with the flow. It'll be so much easier. It'll fit in so much better. It's, it's just not worth it to go against the culture around you that is crowding in on you and pushing you towards what the Bible calls sexual immorality. If you have ever felt that way, if you feel that way, you're not alone. Paul knew exactly what it was like to experience the battle between the flesh and the spirit. He wrote about that several places in his New Testament writings. And here, Paul knew that the Thessalonians themselves, we talked about this a little bit last week, they were living in the middle of a culture just completely overrun and full of sexual immorality. It was pressuring them to engage in sexual immorality, and the battle between right and wrong was just raging inside of these new believers. So Paul here provides some much-needed reminder of God's will and some much-needed motivation for us in following God's will. Now, last week I said this passage teaches us four actions, and I gave you the first one last week, and we'll look at the next three today. Uh, the first one that we looked at last week was we need to recognize God's will. That's, that's outside of trusting in Christ for salvation. First step in pursuing sexual purity is just understanding what God's will is. And we said that God's will is to set us apart from the sexual immorality of this world. And we looked at that in verses 3, 4, 5, in the first part of verse 6. Now, once Paul explains in this first half of this passage God's will... What is God's will regarding sexual morality? He then gives some reasons why, some motivations to walk in holiness in this area of our lives. And so let me share those three with you. So this would be action two, three, and four, three motivations. Second action we want to take from this passage is this. We want to respect God's vengeance. We want to respect God's vengeance. We see this in the last half of verse 6. This is our first motivation that we have in this passage in honoring God and pursuing His will, to respect God's vengeance. Picking up with the word because in verse 6. That's why we split this into two separate sections. When he has that word because in verse 6, now he's going to give all the reasons why we should obey what he said back in verses 3, 4, 5, and the first part of verse 6. We find this phrase, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. I don't know how many of you are familiar or even like some of the, uh, the Marvel comics and Marvel movies. I kind of like them a little bit. They're, they're, they're fun to watch occasionally. Um, there's, there's this whole group of superheroes known as the Avengers. Heard of those, the Avengers? Why are they called the Avengers? Well, it's because they find the bad guys and they punish them. They give them what they deserve. That's their job. They, they go after the bad superheroes, the villains. There we go. They're not superheroes if they're bad. They're villains. All right, they go after the villains and they, and they punish them. That's what, that's what it means to, to, to give vengeance. To be an avenger, it means to give punishment where punishment is due. Now, I'm not comparing God to a superhero here. God is way, way, way far, far, far greater than a superhero. But I do think that may help us understand what it means when it says God is an avenger. Some of your translations will go ahead and say God punishes. That's what the word avenger means. God being an avenger means he punishes sin. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. The all these things referring to the sexually immoral behavior, which was just forbidden in the previous verse. And so this statement, the Lord is an avenger in all these things, means that God punishes those who engage in sexual immorality. Or we could say it this way. God's vengeance is directed towards sinners, including those guilty of sexual immorality. Not just the sin of sexual immorality. God, is, God takes vengeance on all sin. But here in this passage, we're specifically talking about the sin of sexual immorality. That means we've got to take sexual sin seriously. Because God hates and punishes all sin. 
Already in this short letter, Paul has spoken more than once of God's wrath. We don't often like to think about God's wrath, but it's important to be reminded that it is real. God's wrath was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10. God's wrath was mentioned in chapter 2, verse 16. Here we have this phrase, the Lord is an avenger, and all who do such things. God's word is clear that God is wrathful towards sin, and all sexual behavior that falls outside God's design for sex is sinful. Just a reminder, let me give you those boundaries. What, is, what are the boundaries for, for, God, for, for God's gift of sex to humanity? And God has designed, designed sexual activity to take place between one man and one woman united to one another inside the covenant of marriage. That, that's it. That's God's boundaries. That's what He has set up. Genesis chapter one, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter two, and that carries out throughout the rest of Scripture. We find these words in the book of Hebrews: Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I find it interesting here in this passage that Paul says the Lord is an avenger. When Paul uses the term Lord. Most of the time here, and this is how he uses it here, he's talking, about, he's talking specifically about Jesus. That's his term. Jesus is Lord. He's, he's Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he's talking about Jesus being an avenger. Now, a lot of times, just think about it, a lot of times we think about God's wrath, we don't think about Jesus. We think about God the Father who pours out his wrath, but Jesus is the one who's full of love. He came, comes and dies for our sin. But here it says that the Lord, talking about Jesus, is an avenger. Jesus came the first time to provide a means of salvation, but friends, he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's not going to come lowly and riding on a donkey into Jerusalem to die for the sins of humanity. He's going to come riding on a war horse ready to strike down the nations according to Revelation chapter 19. Look at these words here. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. There's our main clues. We know this talking about Jesus, Jesus the Word, the Word made flesh. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus who is pouring out the wrath of God the Father on humanity. But who is it? When I read a passage like this, I have to ask this question. Who is it that's going to be struck down by Jesus? It's all of those who are guilty of sin and have not had God rescue them from their sin. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came to rescue us from our sins so that the second time he comes, we don't have to experience his vengeance toward our sin because he already took it upon himself on the cross. But everyone who has not trusted in Jesus's work of salvation, which he accomplished the first time when he came and he took God's wrath towards our sin, those are the ones who are struck down. Jesus is coming back and he will take vengeance on sinners, those who have not yet received his forgiveness. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 22, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. 
And then in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, just in case we're, we're still not convinced that Jesus, this Jesus who, who, who came and, and said, let the little children come to me, this meek and mild Jesus, just in case we're not convinced that it's him that is going to come and strike down the nations, Paul writes to the Thessalonians in his second letter, he says this, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There's a distinction. Not on everybody, but only on those who have not trusted in the gospel of Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Church, the wrath of the Son is real. The wrath of the Son is real. And Paul had warned the Thessalonians of God's wrath when he preached the gospel to them. Notice the very end of verse 6. He says, which we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. We've already told you this. The wrath of the Son is real. And now he's using that truth as a motivation to help them pursue sexual purity instead of sexual immorality. Here's the question. Why would they, why would we, church, want to engage in behavior which is hated by the one whom we have believed in for salvation? It doesn't make sense. If we've trusted in Jesus to rescue us from his vengeance towards sin, including sexual morality, why would we then want to go back and engage in that very sin? Respecting God's vengeance should motivate us to pursue sexual purity. Now let's go on to the third action, which is the second motivation, okay? The third action in this passage we see in verse 7, and that is remember God's call. We want to respect God's vengeance, and also we want to remember God's call. He says, for God, in verse 7, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is a second of three times that Paul uses this word called in this letter. We saw it back in chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul said, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, often when we think about God's call on someone's life, we're thinking about a specific call to a specific area of service in God's kingdom. Like we might say, um, God has called me to go to the house of people in Africa to share the gospel with them. Or, or God has called me to be a, a Sunday school teacher. Or God has called me to, 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 to work, use my gifts and talents to work with children. Or, or God has called me to share the gospel with my neighbor or with a co-worker. That's a, that's a fine way. And sometimes even the Bible uses the word call in that way. But there's another way the Bible uses the word call. And, and every time Paul uses the word call in 1 Thessalonians, he's not talking about our, a specific area of service. He's talking about God's call to salvation. And that's something that all believers have experienced, that equal call to salvation, to the same salvation. That's the way Paul uses it here. And it's so important, church, it's so important for us to remember that salvation is a gift and a gift is always initiated by the giver, not the receiver. Scripture teaches that salvation begins with God and not with man. God doesn't save people primarily because humanity asked him for salvation. God saves people primarily because he chose to provide salvation for humanity. Just think about it. Which came first? When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. Which came first? Adam and Eve crying out to God for salvation or God 
beginning this incredible plan of salvation. It was while Adam and Eve were walking around guilty, hiding from God, sewing up some fig leaves to, sh- to hide their shame, that God said, I will send a man born of woman who will destroy the serpent. Before humanity ever called out to God, God was calling out to humanity with this plan of salvation. Paul's already said as much in chapter 1, verse 4 of this letter when he spoke of God choosing the Thessalonian believers. Now, say, what in the world does this have to do with pursuing sexual purity? Are you just going off on a tangent about how we're saved? I'm going off on how we're saved, but I'm not going off on a tangent. This is Paul's point here. This has everything to do with pursuing sexual purity in our lives. If salvation originates with God's call to man rather than man's call to God, then it only makes sense that the purpose or the result of salvation must be centered on God's will and not man's. In other words, God gets to tell us what to do with our salvation because he is the one who designed it and gave it to us and called us to this salvation. He is the author of it. See, if salvation was our idea, then we could use it for our own purposes. But it's not our idea. Salvation is God's idea. And it's His work. And so it must be used to accomplish His purposes. And God's purpose in saving us is to make us holy. And so God can, uh, excuse me, Paul can use God's call to salvation in our lives as a motivation for us pursuing sexual purity. Let me say it this way, Christian. God did not save you from sin so that you would continue living in sin. God saved you from sin so that sin would be replaced with holiness. And when we keep this God-centered view of salvation, it will help protect us from using the salvation God has given us for our own purposes. We will then want to use God's salvation because it's His salvation given to us for His purposes. And His purpose is to make us holy. I think this is an awesome motivation in our pursuit of holy living. When we're in the middle of the battle between the flesh and the spirit, when the pressures of the world are pushing us towards sexual immorality, when our sinful flesh is persuading us to dwell on on those lustful thoughts or to click on that pornographic website or to give that flirtatious look to someone other than our spouse or agree to live together before we're married, when our sinful flesh seems to scream at us just to give in, friends, I believe that the call of God screams even louder. You see, behind the word called stands the, the God who created you and me in His image. The God who designed a plan of salvation for his rebellious image bearers and who promised to send a savior and who orchestrated all the events of human history to ensure that this promise of salvation would be fulfilled and who sent his righteous son into this world that is filthy with sin and who nailed his own son to the cross and who poured out his wrath toward your sin and my sin upon his son on the cross and then who destroyed the power of sin by by raising his son up from the dead. This God who then put someone in your life to share this good news of the gospel with you and who breathed life into your sin-sick heart so that you could hear and respond in repentance and faith to the message of salvation and who forgave you of every single sin and set you free from the chains of sin When you called out to him for a salvation to which he had already called you. 
Church, that's the God who stands behind this call. That is the call of God. And it is louder in the Christian's ear than any call of Satan to sexual immorality. Church, how dare we respond to God's gracious call to holiness with sexual immorality or or sin of any kind. I think that engaging in sinful behavior is really like a slap in the face toward the God who has called us to a salvation of holiness. Paul wrote this to the Colossians. He said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Church, we have not been delivered from darkness to then engage in works of darkness. And sexual immorality lives in the domain of darkness. And so may our hearts be broken as we look to the cross. May our hearts be restored then as we look to the cross. From any and all past sin. And then, going forward, may our hearts be motivated to pursue sexual purity as we look at the cross, the centerpiece of God's call of salvation. May the cross of Christ, church, may it drown out the floods of temptations that come our way as we remember this glorious, saving call of God. There's one more action that we need to take as we pursue sexual purity. And this one's good, too. <laughs> These are just great motivations, okay? The, the, the fourth and final action, which is the third motivation, is this. We need to rely upon God's gift. Church, we've got to rely upon God's gift. We see this in the last verse here, in verse 8. Now, I want you to think about these three motivations this way. The first motivation, respecting God's vengeance, is a motivation that comes from looking at the future. Right? What's coming in the future? God's judgment upon sexual immorality. The second motivation, remembering God's call, is looking back to the past. It's looking back to to God's salvation of us, how He has already saved us from sexual immorality. Now, this third motivation is looking at the present. Right now, God has not left us to fight this battle on our own. Praise the Lord. (laughs) He has not left us to fight this battle on our own. He has given us an incredible gift. We have the spirit of the God who is holy, helping lead us each and every day down the path of holiness. Verse 8 says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, if we if we read that, in the actual way it's written, in the word order, it sounds really weird in English, but I think it helps emphasize something important for us. If we read that verse, the way it's written in the Greek, it says, who gives the spirit of him the holy to you. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit. It says the spirit of him the holy. Now, why would Paul write it that way? What's he doing? He's given us a motivation to pursue holiness. And what greater motivation than to say, guess who you have living in you? The spirit of him, the holy. And so God has called you to live in holiness and you have in you not just any spirit. You have the spirit of God, the holy one. The very one who is holy is living inside of you. Church, we must rely upon God's gift because God's gift is his Holy Spirit who empowers us to live in sexual purity. God's gift to us is His Holy Spirit who empowers us to live in sexual purity. God loves, church, God loves you too much. And He is too powerful to call us to holiness and not give us everything we need to live out 
that holiness. He loves you too much to just to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to I'm going to sit back and let you do it on your own. And he's too powerful. It's not that he says, well, I'd love to help you, but I, I don't really have the power to. Nah, he loves us and he has the power to. I mean, he, he's not like the parents who buy their child a new toy, but then fail to give her the batteries needed to operate it. You know what I'm saying? Ever opened up that gift on Christmas morning? Oh, man, not going to work. We forgot the batteries. That's not like the salvation God gives us. He gives us this incredible gift of salvation. You know what it comes with? The Holy Spirit. So that that salvation can do in us what it was intended to do. Set us apart from the ways of the world unto holiness. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, we said that we must never claim ignorance as an excuse for disobedience because God has made known to us through His Word how we're supposed to live. And now in light of verse 8, I think we could add this. We must never claim inability as an excuse for disobedience. We can never claim inability as an excuse for disobedience because God has given us His very power. Living in us to give us the ability to apply what we learn in His Word to our lives to empower us to pursue sexual purity. And so if we find ourselves engaging in sexual immorality, the problem isn't that God has called us to too high of a standard. The problem is that we're not submitting ourselves to the power and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us who has the ability, is very capable, to deliver us from evil. And set us on the path of holiness every moment of every day. He says in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. So we can't walk out of here and say, well, that's just what the preacher said, or that's just what, that's just what my parents said, or that's just what this Sunday school teacher said. This is what God says. This is what God says. And so, so to disregard this, to reject this, is to reject God's will, to reject God's vengeance, to reject God's call, and to reject God's spirit. But when we submit to God in His ways through faith in Jesus and a daily dependence upon God's spirit, we will find ourselves resisting sexual morality. Pursuing sexual holiness. I love how James put it. He puts it so succinctly when it comes to fighting temptation in our lives. He says this in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice that it doesn't start with resisting the devil. It starts with submitting to God and his ways. And when we submit to God and his ways, that we love the way of holiness more than the way of sin and wickedness, then... We'll be submitting to that power of the Holy Spirit in us and we will be able to resist the devil. It's not merely saying no to the devil. It's saying yes to God and his will. Church family, sexual morality is dangerous. It's sinful and it's all around us. Perhaps today it's not just around you, but perhaps today it's in you. Perhaps today it's in you. If you've never, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation then I want you to know, listen very carefully to this, I want you to know that there is no sin, no sin that God cannot rescue you from, except the sin, there is one sin, the sin of rejecting the call through His Holy Spirit to salvation. If you reject God's call to salvation and say, I don't want to be saved by Jesus, well then, God, I mean, God can't forgive you of that because that is the way to, of forgiveness. But outside of that, any sin God can rescue you and forgive you from, there's no sin that would keep you out of the kingdom of God except for rejecting God's free gift of salvation. I find great comfort in the words of Paul to the church at Corinth. He wrote this, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You said, I thought you were going to give us a passage that was comforting. Well, I'm not finished with it. Verse 11 says, and such were, were, were some of you. But you were washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. I love that. He lists all these all these sins and, and, and that we would engage in. And he says those will never inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you who will inherit the kingdom of God were those people. What happened? You were washed. You were clean. You were sanctified. You were justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Man, that, that's reason to give God honor and glory and praise. That's reason to live for him right there. And so if you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then that's what you need to do. And he will rescue, you, will clean you from any and all sin. What if you've already been saved? What if you're already saved? You know you're saved. You trusted in Christ alone. But today you know that you have fallen prey to the schemes of the enemy. And right now you feel the guilt of sexual immorality or some other sin in your life. What then? Can I share with you another passage that I find great comfort in? I love this. Because this is the passage that's being written to believers and about believers. It comes in, comes in 1 John. 1 John says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is writing that to believers in context. He's strongly encouraging believers not to sin. He's saying, don't live in sin. But, but, if you find that you have stumbled into sin, Christian, then you need to go to Jesus and you need to confess and rest. Confess your sin to Him and then rest in His full and complete forgiveness for you. And then let that beautiful gift of forgiveness, that ongoing gift of forgiveness, leads you away from sin and into holiness. You know, I think back to that night in Hong Kong when I, I quickly gave in to following the crowd because that was the easiest thing to do. When I think back to it, I really didn't have any motivation not to do that. There, there was really no motivation to, to try to push back in the opposite direction. But I think my attitude would have been different if I knew that the crowd was getting ready to head off the side of one of those mountains there in Hong Kong that just drops off into the ocean. I think my attitude would have been different if my father had called me in the other direction. And I think my attitude would have been different if I thought that I had the power to push back on the crowd and open up a way in the direction that I knew I needed to go. Church, those are the motivations that we have been given in our pursuit of sexual purity. We've been warned of God's future vengeance, what's coming. We've been reminded of God's past call to salvation. And we've been challenged to not reject God's Holy Spirit who is able to push back the darkness around us and open up for us a way of holiness. And so may we as God's people, church, pursue sexual purity for the sake of our own sanctification, for the sake of our marriages and families which can be ripped apart because of sexual immorality, for the sake of the lost around us who will only be attracted to Jesus if God's people actually look like Jesus. And ultimately, 
for the sake of Jesus. The one who died for us. The one who is worthy of every part of our lives. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I have a time of response where you can respond to the Lord. Listen, if, if, if today you, you, God has been speaking to your heart and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, then, then that's what you need to do right now. You, 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 need to, you need to go from being lost in your sin to being rescued from your sin. And you can do that if you trust in Jesus. You need to confess to Him that you are a sinner and then ask the Lord to save you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And friend, he'll do that. I know a lot of us here, maybe all of us here today, have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But maybe there's some sin in your life. Maybe it's sexual morality. Maybe it's some other sin. But today, you need to take, a, take just a moment and you need to go to Jesus. And you need to confess and then you need to rest. You don't need to deny that sin in your heart anymore. You need to confess it to the Lord. And then you need to rest in His forgiveness. Not be weighed down by that sin, but daily submitting to the Holy Spirit, walking in holiness.